You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. My name is Michael Talbot, and today I'm delighted to welcome to the University of Greenwich my esteemed colleague and dear friend, Dr. Lauren Banco, who is a postdoctoral research associate in Israel-Palestine studies within the Department of Arabic and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Manchester. Lauren, welcome. Thank you. Um, thank you, Mike, and also Sam, uh, for organising this, and I'm, I'm quite excited to, to be here and to share a bit of what I've been working on. Fantastic. Well, let's get straight to it. So your book project, um, which you're going to tell us about shortly, looks at ideas of citizenship in Mandate Palestine. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about what the the book is about. Sure. Um, The book isn't out yet, um, but it is forthcoming in the summer of 2016. So it'll be released with Edinburgh University Press in the UK and um, Oxford University Press in the US and Canada. and basically the book itself is sort of a, a combination of my doctoral thesis and then some significant restructuring of that over the past couple of years. Um, but it's very much based on what the thesis started out to look at, which was citizenship and nationality in Mandate Palestine. Um, so it covers a couple of uh, sort of tracks, let's say. So perceptions, the first being the British legislative creation of nationality, citizenship, um, in the legal sense, what those terms both meant, how they kind of coincided, how they were used uh, at different times during the mandate. So citizenship and nationality, not necessarily being the exact same thing at all times during the mandate years. Um, So the ways the British constructed sort of the legal framework of citizenship and made it a reality for the Palestinians during the mandate, alongside how changing sort of international League of Nations notions of citizenship, what it meant to belong to a state after the First World War, came into being, influenced what was going on in the specific sort of structure of the mandate. Um, and so following this through, the book, anyway, follows from about 1918 to 1947, with a bit of a look, which which we can talk about um, in a bit, maybe, on the Ottoman sort of context of citizenship. And then the book also tracks kind of the Arabs' changing notions, definitions, um, meanings of citizenship. So, specifically, the Arabic-speaking community in Palestine living within the borders of the mandate, but also uh, the emigrant community. So Palestinian Arabs who went to the Americas, regionally to Egypt, to some of the other former Ottoman Arab areas, uh, even before the, the end of the Ottoman Empire. And then once citizenship under the mandate came into being, how these emigrants, and also those that were still within Palestine, were affected by this new legislation, um, which again was very legal in its early years, the way the British framed it, but took on a very political tone, you know, at least by the late 1920s, early 1930s. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that overview. Let's perhaps jump in, as you suggested, to think Mm -hmm. about this idea of citizenship then. Okay. So, you know, as you know, in in Ottoman studies, it's received a great deal of attention recently, Mm -hmm. what it means to be an imperial subject, an imperial citizen at the end of empire. How do you see the idea of citizenship being articulated? How does it develop over time in your Palestinian mm. context? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And, and like you said, there are these, there have been quite interesting works in the past few years on say, Ottoman imperial citizenship. Some of them dealing with um, the Ottoman Empire more broadly. Karen Kern's work, who dealt with, I think, Ottoman Iraq. Michelle Campos, who looks specifically at Palestine during the Ottoman period. Um, And there's a few others, and some that don't deal with the Arab lands at all, which are also quite fascinating. Um, So in the Ottoman context, really, I guess the place to start is late 19th century. You have the Ottoman nationality law in the 1860s, 1869, which was very much 
a sort of legal um, framework for who came under this rubric of being an Ottoman citizen, national. The two terms weren't necessarily always used or employed in the same way and don't necessarily sort of go with contemporary notions of nationality and citizenship. Um, and the, the Ottoman law didn't necessarily grant rights in the sense of civil, political, social rights that citizenship theorists today and in Western Europe associate with how citizenship comes into being. Um, <clears throat> but the citizenship law in the late Ottoman period very much gave you know, Arabs, other Ottoman subjects, uh, a sort of diplomatic, legal, international status when they were outside of the empire. It also um, sort of codified the ways that someone could become an Ottoman, so by birth um, to Ottoman parents and Ottoman father, um, living in the territory or being born in that, that territory, even if parents weren't Ottoman, and naturalization. And this was pretty much the framework for Ottoman sort of imperial citizenship that lasted until the First World War. And it would set, um, even if it didn't become the foundation for mandate citizenship, in the minds of many former Ottomans, the ways that citizenship was passed or the way someone could become a citizen was very much, by 1918, sort of seen as a standard, you know, the ways that that, that was done in the minds of the Arabs. Um, and once the mandates came into being and the League of Nations had a hand in creating citizenship in these new mandate states, um, <clears throat> the British and the French didn't necessarily go along with the Ottoman regulations, but the Arabs themselves, I mean, they still had this sense of, you know, for several decades, what citizenship meant. And all of a sudden that was very much sort of ruptured after 1918 and definitely by the 1920s. Before we move on to discussing some of those complexities, mm. maybe we could think about the differences that you take care to articulate in your work between citizenship and national identity. So right. how was, what are the differences, structural differences, conceptual differences that you've articulated? Mm. Well, this is, this is actually a, a quite big question, I guess. And for people who work on even contemporary citizenship, nationality, you know, what are the differences? You know, how do they relate to sort of senses of national, ethnic identity? In the Ottoman context, um, the citizenship law, at least in the, on the Arab side, was very much framed as a nationality law. So the language that was employed to describe it was jinsiya, which meant nationality. Um, citizenship being something perhaps more political, something that denoted kind of rights-bearing subjects, which, as I said, the law certainly didn't do that so much. Um, <clears throat> but nationality came to mean, at least by you know, the 1910s, for the Arabs, something that was um, denoted a very sort of communal status. So people that had a shared sort of history, an Ottoman history, coming under the rubric of being Ottoman citizens. So thank you for that. You've, you've taken care in your work. I mean, before we go forward, perhaps it's interesting to discuss the, the conceptual framework a bit more. You've taken care in your work to differentiate between citizenship and nationality. Could you perhaps say what that means structurally and in terms of ideals in, in this Palestinian context? Yeah, sure. Um, I think what I've tried to do in the book is trace the changing language of nationality and citizenship, uh, as well as what those terms actually meant in practice and in a sort of realistic sense. So during the Ottoman period, you have the Ottoman law of nationality, which is differently interpreted, but really conveyed a sort of imperial citizenship. Um, and the way that it was referred to by the Arabs particularly you know, after, and certainly by the mandate period, when referring back to this Ottoman law, was a law of jinsiya, which came to mean nationality in sort of the discursive context uh, in Palestine specifically, and in the other, what becomes the other mandates as well. So largely in the Arab provinces. And as I said, that nationality didn't denote rights as such, so citizenship rights, um, but Ottoman nationals had a diplomatic status, um, in a sense a kind of uh, institutionalized international status as well. They were granted passports on the basis of this, uh, identity documents, 
in Ottoman consuls abroad were able to, to sort of, you know, offer some kind of not necessarily always protection for these peoples, but in their travels, they were recognized as Ottoman citizens. Um, so it was a very diplomatic, legal status. And it was something that was referred back to after 1918 by the Arabs, specifically after the British instituted what was called a citizenship law in Palestine. Um, and this changing language is something that I look at a little bit in the book. Uh, and it was also something that, perhaps not so much in the Ottoman narrative, but definitely when you get past 1918, almost immediately when ideas for how to call these Palestinian inhabitants uh, by the British began to be discussed both in London, in Jerusalem, where the, the mandate administration or what will become the mandate administration is, uh, is beginning to take shape. Uh, and in London specifically, the British were keen to sort of frame citizenship in Palestine along the lines of imperial British colonial citizenship elsewhere, specifically that of Egypt, India. Um, but there were also these debates between the Home Office, the Foreign Office, Colonial Office, Middle East Department, that went back and forth for a number of years, even into the 1930s, over whether what the inhabitants of the mandate had was nationality or citizenship and what each term conveyed in different contexts. So it was a sort of contentious term. And the Arabs, for their part, um, and again, I look very much at the Arab narrative and Arab definitions, sort of self-definitions of citizenship. And, you know, the term for citizenship, or muatana, doesn't really come into being in sort of newspapers, petitions, letters from emigrants abroad to emigrant communities until late 1920s. And it's always, the this, this status is referred to as nationality, which I think in the minds of, of many Arab leaders conveyed a more sort of communal sense of identity, an ethnic kind of belonging, something that was progressive from the Ottoman period and you know, citizenship in a legal sense was what the British wanted to, to instill. Um, but again, a citizenship without sort of rights necessarily. And just to, to mention maybe quickly, on the Arab side, what was contentious with this idea of nationality, uh, again, that's what they referred to the law as, even though the British, almost you know, a month or two before the law actually came into being, the British had been calling it a nationality law as well, and then the term changed to citizenship. Um, but the Arabs had very interesting ways of sort of conceptualizing how the Jewish immigrants fit into a nationality law and ways that were, you know, the Arabs were very sort of curious as to if this was a nationality law and the Arabs saw themselves as Ottoman nationals with these sort of commonalities that newly arrived immigrants didn't have, you know, how could the Jews from Europe who had their own citizenship and nationality all of a sudden come under a rubric of uh, a Palestinian nationality and specifically sort of the minority within that nationality. And of course, that echoes back to these debates that are going on in the late Ottoman period before the First World War. How can a Russian subject acquire exactly. an Ottoman citizenship? Exactly. The same, same exact debates in the mandate period. How could a Russian, European, even you know, the, the Arabs were quite interested in how some of the mandate officials, so English officials, some of them English Jews like Herbert Samuel, others, if they were to have Palestinian citizenship, how on earth would that work with their British, Russian, German, uh, whatever else nationalities and citizenships, particularly um, in light of the fact that the Arabs for a long time sort of were really pressing the British um, and, you know, in very rhetorical ways as well, to define what was meant by a national homeland uh, for the Jewish people and how a national homeland for Jewish immigrants factored into nationality. And again, these debates went on and sort of in circles and back and forth between the diaspora and, and Palestine, but also within the British um, administration in Palestine and in London. Some of the same debates were being repeated because a lot of British colonial officials were also sort of unsure what these statuses meant, uh, specifically for the institution of the mandate, which wasn't, you know, of course, an outright colony of any, of any kind. 
That, I suppose, you know, that brings the complexity to this case. I mean, you mm -hmm. have the, the pressures of the British wanting this colonial structure, but then, of course, you also have this Jewish homeland that you mentioned, but then, in mm -hmm. addition, you have the mandate. Right. Um, so, out of this mess, what, what develops? How, if at all, does a solution to this question of citizenship and identity evolve mm -hmm. in this early period in the 20s? Mm -hmm. Well, what the British did until 1925, and 1925 is the year that the citizenship ordering council was ratified. And this was something that came, an ordering council in the mandate was something that came from very much above, so from London. It wasn't something that was passed specifically or locally to Palestine. It was something you know, signed off nominally by the King of England um, and came into being after... So the administration in Palestine, you know, participated in discussions, debates, sent details back to the colonial office. Um, and the colonial office in, in London was largely responsible for writing the citizenship order in council. But before that, um, 1925, even 1924, like lots of other regulations in Mandate Palestine, uh, Ottoman law was still in force. So Ottoman land law remained in force. I mean, some of it even to today, really, in, in Israel. Um, and the same was true for the Ottoman nationality law. In a sense. What came into being by you know, mid-1920s, just as the law was about ready to come into effect... Um, was that the British weren't necessarily recognizing Ottoman nationals as Palestinian nationals, Palestinian mandate nationals. And so where that was mostly a problem was with Palestinian Arabs who had Ottoman citizenship, proof of that, um, who had resided outside of Palestine for a number of years, um, temporarily, more permanently, and who happened to want to come back to Palestine for whatever reason. Some of them were just, you know, as close as in Egypt and had been doing uh, university studies there. And some of them were merchants, traders, um, business owners in the Americas. And once they... Um, <clears throat> You know, it's a larger story, you know, how the diaspora reacted to the mandate and to Zionist immigration. But once these individuals had, for whatever reason, a desire to come back to Palestine, the British were keen to put every regulation into place not to recognize them as Palestinians. And this was very much linked to League of Nations, uh, international post-war treaties, such as the Treaty of Sevres, the Treaty of Lausanne, which put specific time periods on when citizenship laws in the mandates had to be made by the British and the French, at least for, for the Arab Middle East. And when emigrants, Arab emigrants, were abroad, had to come back to their homelands if they wanted to be certain that they would come under these new citizenship regulations. Um, and this is all quite complex as well. And, and I mean, you have these incidences coming up then of statelessness of Ottomans who are abroad, uh, particularly Palestinians who the British won't recognize and allow back into Palestine unless they naturalized as if they were complete foreigners. Um, so were able to come in on, on sort of uh, the strength that they would naturalize rather than have their actual Ottoman citizenship in a sense sort of converted to Palestinian citizenship. Um, so that was one of the main developments that affected then the British conceptualization of citizenship because you have, you know, almost a year or two after the citizenship law is passed, committees being formed to alert the British to what they, what the Arabs saw as a sort of grave injustice to the emigrants. Um, you know, lots of press in Arabic newspapers about the situation of the emigrants, um, stories from you know, family members of some prominent Palestinian local or national leaders, all trying to, to somehow force the British, not necessarily to completely change the mandate citizenship law, but to allow the Arabs themselves to have a say in that law. Because again, it was passed basically through Whitehall and the Arabs had no, and you know, at least Jewish immigrants, sort of your, your everyday Jewish immigrant in Palestine also had no say in the law itself. Um, but what the British would constantly bring up, even in these early years, was that 
the League of Nations, the Treaty of Lausanne, did not allow for any change to this um, sort of time frame for Arabs to come back to get their citizenship. And the British were quite keen to stick to, to this international regulation. I mean, thinking about, let's take like a kind of a case study, perhaps. Mm. So when you, I mean, when you talk about um, Palestinian emigrants, some of them are pretty far away. I mean, in, mm. in um, South America, Central right. America. Right. So if I'm a, a Palestinian living in Brazil or something, and I want to come back and claim my property and assert my identity, what what do these regulations mean for me? Mm. The, yeah, this is a good question. And you have Palestinians in Brazil, Honduras, Chile, Cuba, writing back to their families at home saying, what on earth can I do? What, I mean, can you pressure the British, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so really what, what many of these Palestinians wanted, I mean, was essentially to have Palestinian citizenship, to have British protection with that citizenship. So diplomatic protection, to have passports, because obviously after 1918, an Ottoman passport meant absolutely nothing. Um, maybe they didn't necessarily all want to come back to Palestine and stay there. Some did. Some owned property there, paid taxes to the mandate administration. And so you have, for all of the mandates, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Transjordan, there aren't necessarily consuls that are mandate, you know, Palestine consulates in the Americas or say the Philippines or even in Egypt or, you know, somewhere closer where many of these emigrants went. But there are British consuls in, in many of these places. And so the situation you have was that the British, early on after the citizenship law was passed, published or tried to publish notices in newspapers where there were big congregations of Arab emigrants. And there's lots of these in the Americas, not necessarily just Palestinian, but definitely Lebanese, Syrian Arabs that had very you know, long-standing roots in places like Brazil, elsewhere. And often lived in, you know, some in urban areas, in, you know, very close to each other, you know, communities that were, that were quite linked. Um, and so what the British tried to do was publicize this law but that wasn't very successful at all. And most of, of the, the um, Palestinians abroad you know, didn't respond to this call to go to the consuls, you know, discuss the, 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 the matter with them. And so you have a couple of years after the law was passed, just as the deadline for these people to come back and take citizenship automatically had, had you know, passed. That's when many Palestinians found out that they couldn't actually get Palestinian passports when they went to British consuls. I mean, for their part, in the sort of documents of the consulates in different areas and Palestinians, you know, visiting them, the consuls were quite sympathetic to the plight of these Palestinians and would write back to the foreign office and the, um, you know, Secretary of State for the Colonies, uh, the Home Office, Dominion's office, various departments in London to ask what to do with these Palestinians. Can, you know, you give them, say, laissez-passer and, and let them go back and, you know, sort everything out with the mandate administration in Jerusalem. Um, should they somehow give them a British passport? What to do with the Ottoman passport? Um, was there an application form of some sort that, that these Arabs had to fill out to get citizenship? It was all very complicated. Um, and there wasn't sort of one standard rule by the mid-1920s followed by the consuls. And so in most cases, the consuls sort of had to tell the, the Palestinians, you know, we can give you a one-way ticket or visa back, laissez-passer, but once you get back, you will have to naturalize as a Palestinian citizen. You know, your previous birth there, residence there, has nothing to do um, with your status now. I mean, you're basically a foreigner going in, um, which was something that caused very much, you know, a, a very big outcry within Palestine, in the press, in some of the uh, nationalist movement circles as well. Um, one thing some of these Arabs did early on was try to circumvent uh, this whole process by going to French consuls requesting Syrian visas 
with some of them with the argument, well, they had been born in Ottoman Syria. There hadn't been a Palestine yet. And this was quite successful. Um, there were quite a few Palestinians who were able to get Syrian visas from the French, go back through Syria. Um, you know, of course, a lot of what happens to them afterwards is lost to sort of the historical record. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, by the early 1920s, you have groups in Palestine saying there are you know, anywhere between 20, 30,000 Palestinians in the Americas who have no means to claim citizenship and who want to come home for whatever reason. Uh, and this is something that, you know, this, this number is sort of pressed upon the British officials, both, you know, the foreign office, colonial office, and, you know, letters are being written to London and even to the king uh, by some Palestinians, to the British people to try and get kind of a lobbyist wave going. Uh, and of course, to the mandate administration who's seen as sort of the, the ones that can maybe change something. Sure. I mean, where's, where's the League of Nations in this? Do any of them seek to try and get a higher authority in that sense to intervene on their behalf? Mm. Yeah, there are records as well. Um, a lot of emigrants wrote to the League of Nations for help. Um, and the League of Nations at times was sympathetic but this doesn't necessarily, again, do much to change the British uh, citizenship, past citizenship order. Um, this comes up later in the 1930s, and specifically in the Peel Commission report in 1937, which is really the first time that a British investigative committee, royal commission really, mentioned this plight of the emigrants and mentioned that they had been writing to the League of Nations, they'd been writing to the British government, the Palestine government, to no avail. Um, but even the League of Nations couldn't really do anything or force the British to do anything. The issue came up in several sort of annual reports to the League and the League's response. But the British in Palestine as some people may know, ran the mandate differently from, say, Iraq or Transjordan and administered it directly uh, rather than allowing sort of indirect rule as the British had elsewhere or the French were doing in Syria and Lebanon. And so any sort of infringement on British sovereignty in Palestine and the law, orders in council, regulations that the British had put into place was uh, very much rebuffed by British officials, um, and they didn't really like the League of Nations saying what could and couldn't be done. And of course, I mean, the Treaty of Lausanne was always looked back to by the British as, well, this is essentially um, the reason that, that this sort of time frame was in place, and you know, the League had no power to change that. Uh, and then the British Foreign Office, for their part, from the mid-1920s, consistently said that there was no place in sort of British law to provide protection to what they termed as Palestinian Arabs who wanted citizenship just for the purpose of being able to say they come under British diplomatic protection. Um, and again, this was something the Foreign Office stressed basically until the end of the mandate, um, claiming that most of these Palestinians, you know, they just wanted citizenship to have the British protection, the British passport that came with that, that, that they didn't really have an intention to go back to Palestine. Um, again, you know, throughout the mandate, there was no sort of systematic survey or even counting by the British of these emigrants, Palestinian Arab emigrants abroad. Uh, and really, aside from initiatives by the emigrants to speak to some consuls in some places in the Americas, um, you know, the Foreign Office didn't really make any effort to try and get the opinions of these individuals, you know, which again were 20, 30,000. A huge amount of people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, relative to the size of sure. Palestine at the time. I suppose, I mean, extra tension would have been caused here, I suppose, by the other national community trying to establish itself in Palestine. And of course, one of the reasons why the British mm. are ruling directly is for this other mandate to assist in the establishment of this Jewish national home. Right. As these Arab Palestinians are arguing their case are they making reference to unequal treatment vis-a-vis mm. -vis the Jews? Or? Right. Um, a lot of them are, absolutely. Um, you know, the Arabs are very aware of what the regulations for naturalization are for Jewish immigrants. Um, you know, this is discussed in newspapers, it's discussed in petitions. You know, it's not something that the Arabs are not completely unaware of. Um, and it's something that causes a, you know, even greater deal of tension. Because it's, you know, for the Jewish immigrants coming to Palestine, many of them came 
um, sort of under the auspices of the Zionist organization. Uh, you know, they had permits to come. The British, again, never put quotas on until very late, which were very much subverted for immigration to Palestine, or quotas on how many immigrants could naturalize. Um, and to naturalize as Palestinian for Jewish immigrants was I mean, relatively straightforward. You know, knowledge of Hebrew, Arabic, English, um, you know, swearing an oath of allegiance. Um, it wasn't until the 1930s that some of these immigrants were sort of seen as suspicious by the British for spreading sort of Bolshevik or communist ideas. Um, but what the Arabs were very much aware of was that the British never necessarily forced some of these Jewish immigrants or many of these Jewish immigrants to give up their former passports. Um, I forget what year it was, but there, there was um, a prominent sort of editorial in one of the Arabic newspapers. I think it was republished in a couple of them that sort of was kind of this, this outcry against uh, the Jewish immigrant who carries two or three different passports in his pocket. Uh, only one is Palestinian, but he uses the others quite regularly and with ease to leave, to go elsewhere, um, to settle somewhere else. You know, many Jewish immigrants who came to Palestine didn't necessarily make that their permanent home. You know, some went and lived for periods of time. Uh, in North Africa, there were lots in Morocco, uh, a lot in France. And their citizenship and their passports, you know, the British had to go through quite a lot of um, hurdles to actually have those revoked. So, you know, in many cases, Jewish immigrants who settled somewhere else and only periodically returned to Palestine kept their Palestinian citizenship, uh, could also keep other passports, could live somewhere else. Uh, whereas for the Arabs, those that did manage to come back to Palestine, they were strictly not allowed to, to resettle permanently or even temporarily somewhere else. They had to um, uh, sort of make it clear to the administration that they would stay in Palestine. They wouldn't leave again. Whereas the immigrants you know, didn't necessarily have those same restrictions placed upon them. Fascinating. Mm. I mean, when we talk about passports, you've mentioned that they're British passports. So... Right. What's the difference between having a British passport and being from the United Kingdom and mm. having a British passport and being from Palestine? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, if anyone's ever seen a Palestine passport, they, they changed design a couple of times during the mandate. But for the most part, they looked like a British passport. They were the same color. Um, they said British passport on them. And then somewhere they would say Palestine or British passport for Palestine. And I think in the 1930s, that design changed, maybe by 1941 something like, I think, 1941. Um, because of this, this same sort of question, what does a British passport entail for a Palestinian? Should it even say British passport? Or should it say for mandated territory only? Um, but the British were quite clear in their regulations that this passport did not provide um, unrestricted access to the United Kingdom. So Palestinians were not British subjects Different people had different ideas of whether they, they were British protected persons or not. Uh, again, the emigrants weren't. But in their travels, those Palestinians who did have passports and citizenship could appeal to, to British consulates if need be. But they couldn't enter the United Kingdom or other British territories by right of having a passport. Um, and... It wasn't until quite late in the mandate that passports became more of a routine document. Um, they were only really printed in large numbers in 1926, from 1926 onwards. Um, before that, you know, people had Ottoman documentary papers and mandate papers a bit later on, during, especially during the, the Palestine revolt. Um, but most people, unless they did travel for business, they, they didn't have a passport and they didn't really make claim to one. Um, but in many cases, neither did some of the Jewish immigrants. You know, you have a lot of Jewish immigrants who, you know, despite what I said before, um, about some of them not having as many restrictions, a lot of them also just didn't take citizenship. They came to Palestine. Um, maybe some of them started the naturalization process, but some never ended up getting a passport. Some never ended up taking citizenship. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. And that perhaps shows something different in the attitudes of the, the nationalist movement between mm. the two communities. I mean, 
obviously the 20s and the 30s, we see all these different um, Arab-Palestinian clubs developing and yeah. new forms of nationalist movement, and right. some, of course, along lines of elites, but others more grassroots. Right. What are they saying about identity, about citizenship in particular? Mm. This is interesting, and it's, it's something I would like to look at a lot more, especially with diaspora, um, civil society groups, nationalist groups. Um, on the Palestinian side, in the mandate, the main nationalist movement, so the, uh, the Palestinian Arab executive that put on Palestinian Arab congresses in the 1920s, um, was led by Jamal al-Husseini, was also somewhat subservient to the Mufti, to Haj Amin, um, had all these sort of elite figures at the, at the, at the head. Only one of them, I mean, a couple from Jamal al-Husseini, uh, who, you know, once in a while would jump into the debate with citizenship. Um, but I believe the Mufti's great uncle, um, Musa Qasim al-Husseini, was I mean, quite elderly during the mandate. I mean, he was in his 80s by the 1930s. But he was a very consistent vocal advocate for granting citizenship to... Palestinian Arabs born in Palestine or born of Ottoman fathers. Um, and he was very, very vocal for the, the cause of the emigrants who by the 19, late 1920s were using terminology such as you know, the right of return. You know, they need the British to grant them this right to return to Palestine. Um, you know, something's very rhetorical, but Musa Qasim was also someone who tried to meet with British officials to change the state of affairs. Again, to no real effect. It's only in the early 1930s when you have uh, the Istiqlal Party, the Palestinian Istiqlal Party, where their sort of platform puts an emphasis on changing the citizenship law and being very vocal about it as well. Um, you also have in the areas of Palestine where lots of emigrants came from, so Bethlehem, even Ramallah, uh, around Jerusalem, um, the families of these emigrants who start sort of lobbyist organizations. And one very prominent one was headed by the mayor of Bethlehem, um, who acted I mean, you know, as, as a lobbyist organization would today, lobbied the British public, government in Palestine, in London, you know, send things to newspapers, wrote petitions, tried to bring the issue of citizenship sort of to, to the forefront. Um, but really across all sort of nationalist parties, what was asked for from the early days of the mandate was that the Arabs have some sort of share in um, government and representation, you know, proportional representation specifically you know, in the mandate administration, some sort of legislative council that would be really representative rather than having British appointed officials pass laws and, you know, things have to go through Britain to, to be put in place. And this was a way that the Arabs thought they could change the citizenship law, other laws as well. But again, you know, as, as people who, who work on the mandate know, that never never ever happened. There was no sort of representative body as in other mandates. Indeed, and of course, as we all know, this, this factor, along with many others, leads to, to trouble in the 1930s. Mm. Um, and you mentioned before, you know, the, the Peel Commission that, is, yeah. that starts to try and solve some of these problems. The Arab Revolt, as it's called, you know, is seen mm. as this formative part, period in, in Palestinian national identity. How formative right. is it for the citizenship debate? This is something I, I look at in the book. Um, and it's something I'd like to look at a bit more, but it's, it's an interesting period, um, the revolt, particularly because you have, you know, the real, by the end of it, sort of decimation of the nationalist movement. These elite figures are exiled, deported, uh, arrested. You know, the Mufti is completely out of the picture, at least, you know, out of Palestine. Um, and during the revolt itself, you have really different tactics of resistance against the mandate and sort of very um, violent actions against Jewish settlements, Jewish communities throughout Palestine, which is something you know, that didn't necessarily happen on the same level it did before 1936. And you have the nationalist movement really being taken over by different kind of rebel leaders, some from outside of Palestine, um, 
Kouakchi, one of the um, uh, commanders of the movement, which was headquartered in Damascus. But what does happen from the British perspective during that time period, during the revolt, is you know, the idea of citizenship is almost completely forgotten about, pushed aside, perhaps not the idea of citizenship, but the status of the citizen. And the Palestinians are very much reduced to sort of colonial subjects, um, whereby the British could sort of bomb them, blow up whole neighborhoods, um, use a wide variety of kind of torture and terror techniques to get the rebel movement to, to sort of cease, um, to stop doing what it was doing, to you know, support from outside, um, to sort of you know, close the borders of Palestine to stop you know, Syrians, Iraqis coming in to fight against the British. Um, and really, you know, citizenship becomes sort of null and void in a sense. Uh, if it had been progressing at all towards a kind of political citizenship, you know, that completely was stopped by the revolt. Um, and you have some of the rebel leaders, you know, trying to instill a kind of civic identity, a, a sort of nationalist identity. Um, you know, you have the things that Ted Swedenberg talked about in his book, um, rebel leaders commanding um, Palestinians to wear certain things. So everyone to sort of, you know, not show their class differences, um, you know, everyone to wear kofiyah, uh, things like that. And you have... You know, there are appeals to a, a civic identity by some of the, the rebel leaders, or sort of the insurgents. But as far as trying to challenge citizenship as such, as it appeared in the nationality and citizenship legislation from you know, the, the 1920s, there wasn't much of that going on. And after the revolt ended, you know, the Peel Commission sort of halfway through released a recommendation for partition, and they had consulted uh, different nationalist leaders who spoke about the situation of the emigrants as being one huge grievance against the British that fed somehow into the revolt. Um, and actually the Peel Commission, you know, despite recommend, being known for recommending partition, it also recommended changes to the citizenship law, some of which sort of came into place after 1939, not in the way the Arabs wanted, but there was in a sense a sort of I don't know how to say, maybe amnesty granted to some emigrants who were abroad um, when the citizenship law was passed. Uh, the extension of the time frame for them to come back was sort of opened up. Again, this didn't affect all of them at all, and not many came under these new regulations and came back. Um, what the PO Commission did find was that, you know, for the most part, I, I think in interviewing different groups in Palestine, you know, they gave specific numbers as to how many um, Jewish immigrants actually had not taken on citizenship. And I can't remember the figures now, but it was quite a significant number. And in many, you know, the 1930s, just before the revolt broke out, in many sort of areas of Palestine where there were municipal council elections, sort of local elections, which the British did allow, sort of measures of representation at that level, many of the Jewish immigrants who voted, voted without being citizens, which was you know, part of, sort of the electoral laws. But again, the revolt as well, you know, at the end of it, the British had instituted this system of you know, identification, Palestinians and Jewish immigrants and Jewish Palestinians were meant to have sort of papers with them at all times. Um, <clears throat> I think the number of passports issued for the first time went up quite significantly during the revolt and specifically for Arabs taking passports to just leave Palestine completely, go to some of the neighboring areas because the, the, you know, the frontiers had really been sort of closed down. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then, you know, again, those who know the history of the mandate know that after the revolt, the British... It's not that they lose interest in Palestine, but they're occupied elsewhere in Europe. Um, and you know, with the rise of 
Hitler in Germany, the numbers of Jews coming to Palestine rising. Um, you know, you have all of these different schemes in London by MPs, other people trying to get a kind of universal Palestinian citizenship for all you know Jews worldwide. Uh, I think this happens a couple of times before the revolt, but also in 1939, you know, the issue is raised. And it seems like the British do sort of consider these things. I mean, none of them come into being, of course, giving you know, Jews worldwide Palestinian citizenship, but it's, you know, it's, it's something that is under discussion, especially in London. Absolutely. And also, you know, the, the echoes of the future, if that's the right sort of phrase, are, are quite telling. I mean, in terms of one community getting this right of return, the other one not. Mm. I mean, how do you see the future tragedies that play out for the, the Palestinian people how do you see that their roots are in this citizenship, citizenship debate? Mm. I mean, do you see that they are, or is that reading too much into it? I don't know. I mean, in a sense, it's difficult to make that connection quite directly. Um, I mean, you have now, I mean, some people have said, you know, the Palestinians were dispossessed in the 1920s with the citizenship law, those that lived abroad and couldn't come back. Again, you know, 20, 30, 35,000 Palestinians just... You know, simply could not come back to Palestine. And once the state of Israel came into being and the Israeli nationality law was passed, you know, that, that was, you know, there's no hope for these people coming back. Um, <clears throat> but as far as sort of implications for, for what happens, you know, after 1948 onwards, you do have, in maybe a strange way, the complete reversal as the Arabs had wanted the British to put, you know, make nationality based on a kind of historical community, an ethnic community, um, you know, Ottoman community of Arabs. The Israeli state very much does that for the, the, the nationality on Israel, making it very much based on, you know, the right of return to Israel being, you know, one has to be Jewish. Um, but as far as sort of parallels between that period and, and post-1948, you know, it's, it's difficult. I guess on local levels, you can sort of see ideas of citizenship and how they were transformed, how some were sort of carried on from the mandate period into the Israeli state period in Arab areas. Um, and I think there is a bit of work being done on this. Uh, you know, how citizenship was negotiated um, after 1948 in you know, places like Nazareth, the Galilee. Um, <clears throat> but again, the Ottoman citizenship law by that point in time was, I mean, you know, there was no going back to, you know, citizenship being based on birth in a territory or descent from Ottoman parents. So welcome back. Um, Lauren, let's talk, we've talked through the kind of chronological developments mm. and some of the conceptual ideas um, of citizenship and identity. What does citizenship mean in practice? How does one act as a citizen? Mm. How does one perform as a citizen in this Palestinian context? Yeah, this, is, this is a really good question because you have, you know, in Palestine during the mandate, like lots of other places during the same time period, during the interwar period, um, this sort of notion of what it means to be a citizen in terms of behavior, you know, what active citizenship is, you know, what's called for as related to sort of active citizenship. And I think I said at the beginning, you know, these changing definitions for the status of nationality or citizenship. And the Arabs in Palestine initially refer to their status as one of nationality. <clears throat> but once the citizenship order in council is passed, you have more incidences of muwatana being used for citizenship. And you have this discourse developing in lots of circles in Arab Palestine, as it was with, with you know, Jewish and sort of more Zionist nationalist immigrants and groups as well of civic 
duties of the citizen, political rights, you know, social behaviors of citizens. Um, <clears throat> and what the, the Arabs do, perhaps like, like, you know, in other places as well, is, you know, call the British to task for the rights and duties that, you know, the British United Kingdom has given to British citizens, um, you know, voting rights. Again, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, you know, this isn't what we would think of today. Um, but, you know, the right to vote, the right to be proportionally represented, um, even things like rights to education, social welfare, uh, labor movements, you know, rights for workers, you know, even in the discourse, again, by the 1920s in Palestine, and others have written on, on, on this in, in a different context, but the women's movement, um, you know, rights for women for certain things. Um, <clears throat> so there is very much a discourse of rights of citizenship um, and questions of how that translates into active behaviors of citizenship. And the Palestinian Arabs, at least, again, the sort of national movement, members of the national movement, some very populist uh, leaders as well, Istiklal party members by the 1930s, um, local leaders, they're all very keen to articulate sort of demands for you know, being given duties of citizenship and rights of citizenship and for the government to play its role as well to the citizenry. Um, of course, political rights are what is stressed the most. So the political rights of citizenship, you know, voting uh, or the franchise. But again, you know, in cases of land disputes, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> not only land disputes, but uh, concessions that are granted by the British for certain tracts of land or for certain industries to be built or, or companies and things. Um, the Palestinians are very keen to say, well, these should be given to citizens or citizens should have rights to land ownership that can't be sort of trumped by the government um, or by, say, absentee landowners, you know, selling land, that citizens should have a right to hold things in trust. Um, so you have, again, this discourse of behaviors of what it means to be an active member of uh, a Palestinian nation. And this is modeled, in a sense, on you know, Western European ideals of citizenship. The Palestinians, like, you know, the Syrians, uh, Syrian Arab, Ottoman Arab community from the mid-19th century, uh, were also very interested in developments in France and looking back towards these kind of revolutionary ideals of, of France in the late 18th, early 19th century, rights of man and citizen. This is invoked quite a bit. Um, from the 19th century and then, of course, onwards. Um, so again, you have these influences coming from outside, but there is still this sense of Ottoman identity you know, into the 1920s. And you know, certainly before the First World War in the Ottoman Empire, you have a growing sense of civic identity. You, know, you have civic associations, different clubs being formed that are very much on the basis of being part of this Ottoman nation. Um, you know, that are political in nature, but also social for, you know, welfare, for education, uh, again, for workers' rights. All of these different ideas from the Ottoman context have filtered into the mandate period as well in terms of what's influences, in influencing the practices of, of citizenship, essentially. Um, and, of course, the Palestinians, you know, again, very much act out the, what they say are practices of citizenship. So holding demonstrations, boycotts of certain things, of, of at times Jewish goods, British goods, British officials coming to Palestine, um, the right to petition against the government, um, the right to hold nationalist meetings, all of these things that are stressed as, well, we belong to Palestine, be it a mandate or not. So we have you know, these rights. And for the most part, until you know, the, the revolt period, the British, you know, they don't necessarily clamp down on these expressions of political dissent. They don't give, the British don't really give the Palestinians the sort of, you know, they don't hear them out necessarily as citizens, but they don't outright censor things either. 
you know, except in, in you know, times of violent flare-ups and then the revolt later on. What about um, obligations? Is that a way for them to come back? I mean, a lot of the debate in the late Ottoman period is, you know, mm. citizens get rights, but they also have to do something for the state as part of those civic duties, be it conscription or right. other forms of, of public involvement. What are the obligations of citizenship, as understood? Mm. That's an interesting question, because, again, in Palestine, unlike later mandate period Syria, you don't really have a, you know, an armed force of any kind or any sort of notions of conscription. That's really not something that the British instituted. Um, but what you do have is maybe a more internal notion of obligations um, that the nationalist movement stressed a bit, but on a very local level, different groups stressed that inhabitants of Palestine, Arab inhabitants, and also some Jewish inhabitants as well, particularly Ottoman, Arabic-speaking Jews, had the obligation to build up Palestine as a sort of nation um, geared towards, you know, in some cases, this idea that the mandates would someday become independent, self-governing, uh, but that that had to be worked for and it had to be obtained um, by sort of the youth in, in Palestine, by, you know, different workers' movements. Um, there were even calls at various points for emigrants to try as much as they could to come back to Palestine to put their capital that they'd made somewhere else into businesses in Palestine, into industry, into really having a kind of autonomous, independent political community. Um, and the obligation to do so was stressed from... You know, a lot of different corners and in various sort of nationalist congresses, student movements, the women's movement, workers' unions as well. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So um, I think maybe we should move on to thinking about how you're going forward with this project. We've heard a yep. lot about um, this fantastic PhD that's turned into this wonderful book that I'm sure we're looking forward to reading very much. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the new project that you are going to start researching soon. Um, it's to do with refugees and testing these ideas of mm. identity and citizenship. Please tell us a, a bit Right. About that. Well, I mean, the, the postdoc that I currently have for the next couple of years, um, you know, I have all of these different ideas or, you know, when you come into a, a project like this, these different ideas that you have to sort of bring together and then all of this other very interesting stuff that, you, if, you know, if you start a postdoc from the PhD, there's, there's loads you want to look at. But one thing I'm quite interested in along with, you know, continuing to look at circulations of the idea of citizenship and the idea of nationality and how sort of migration and movement of Arabs, not only from Palestine, but from the former Ottoman Arab world, you know, how within this movement ideas of citizenship, civic identity, nationality were discussed, were articulated, um, put into practice in the diaspora, within, um, say, the Eastern Mediterranean as well. Uh, and part of that is looking back a bit more to the Ottoman period and specifically sort of circulations and movement of people into Ottoman Palestine, um, resettlement of Ottoman refugees, uh, migration of sometimes Arabic-speaking more often than not Muslim, but non-Arabic-speaking groups into Ottoman Syria and, of course, Ottoman Palestine, how these groups were treated by the Ottoman administration, how their status alternately was one of being uh, refugees, being stateless, uh, somehow assuming Ottoman citizenship, but not necessarily having the kind of obligations um, you just mentioned to that, so these different groups not you know, being conscripted, not having to pay taxes. You know, how does a, a sort of identity in this movement and migration develop? And then how is that carried through to the interwar period by these different groups? Um, and I want to look mostly at Palestine, so looking at Algerian refugees into um, Ottoman Palestine, specifically in the Galilee, um, coastal areas, but also um, Bosnian refugees, you know, Chechnyans, Circassians. Loads of people are moving in and out of you know, Palestine, greater Syria in the late Ottoman period and just before the First World War. And you know, their narratives, I don't think, have been the focus so of, of much nationalist history, of course, but 
not really of history in an imperial Ottoman sense or even how these individuals and communities fit into this narrative of citizenship and belonging. Yeah. I mean, this is a really, again, another complex story. I mean, with Algerians, mm. Akashians, and Bosnians, mm. at the same time that you, of course, have Jewish immigration yeah. and, of course, Palestinian migration. So mm. it's, a, it's a really scrambled picture. So how are you going to try and make sense <laughs> of this all? That's the question. <laughs> I mean, I think the main theme I want to look at is movement and resettlement and also this kind of history of ideas going back and forth and this history of discourses um i mean the emo the diaspora kind of uh, documentary production so newspapers petitions letters I mean, there's lots of different um people who've worked on this maybe not just for palestine but certainly syria lebanon there are people working on this for palestine as well um particularly looking at groups in the Americas and South America and sort of newspapers that were produced in the Americas in you know, Arabic, Spanish, Portuguese. Um, but movement and the construction of borders is something that I think could tie together then the sort of notions of fixing citizenship and fixing nationality and how these become kind of inherent statuses. Um, and how these statuses also changed over time, when they were more flexible, when they were more rigid. Um, you know, I mean, this, this, I'm hoping to be a series of projects, so some very specific to Palestine, but also, again, looking more broadly at the, the Arab Levant during the interwar period, when these ideas all kind of came together, um, when notions of citizenship, nationality, civic identity, influences of those were coming from outside, coming from within, um, and all of this is happening at the, the same time that borders are put into place, passport controls, regulations become you know, a feature of newly independent states, still sort of colonial or imperial uh, territories, the United States as well, the Americas, um, places like Egypt, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting time period to look at what's happening on, a, on the level, sort of imperial level, of fixing identity. Um, when on sort of the local level, in the Arab Levant, in the diaspora, these identities are still seen as quite flexible. I mean, you have Ottoman migrants still seeing themselves as Ottoman into the 1930s. And you know, even here in, in Britain, um, in sort of the official record, some of these you know, former Ottomans who have resided you know, since the First World War in the United Kingdom are still referred to as Ottoman by the 1930s. Um, so it's, just, it's a very interesting time period, late 19th century to the interwar period. And I think you know, framing these movements and notions of, of citizenship for that particular time period is something that there's not really much that's been done on it, at least for the Middle East, at least for the Arab Levant, late Ottoman history narrative. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, synthesizing, mm. as you say, there have been studies done on specific communities and specific yeah. areas, but trying to synthesize this into a, yeah. a comprehensive picture will be fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, I do want to look at it from the Arab perspective. But again, I mean, there have been things done on you know, sort of the eastern provinces of the Ottoman Empire, what happens with Turkish citizenship after, especially 1922, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big project. I mean, I don't know how, <laughs> how far I'll get with it uh, outside of sort of the Arab perspective, the Arab narrative, but that's definitely the place that I'm, I'm starting. Um, but you also have at the same time period these influences upon citizenship and nationality from sort of more, let's say, radical leftist groups. Um, the Comintern being one of them, the, the Communist International, um, very kind of radical groups in the diaspora, um, Egyptian groups as well, sort of uh, so Arab socialist movements, the labor movement. I mean, all of these things are quite important to conceptualizing citizenship, um, not just at sort of a bigger level, but also at the very sort of local level, um, particularly, you know, the borders between, say, Palestine and Syria and Again, this is the same situation into the 1930s. People that may have been born in 
in Ottoman Palestine or, you know, somehow being able to acquire Syrian citizenship just by virtue of thinking, well, you know, I'd like to be Syrian, you know, these, these kind of very strict civic and citizenship sort of borders, despite the legislation that's been put in place, aren't necessarily uh, translated to, you know, the, the minds of some individuals who cross between mandate territories quite frequently. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, it, it's a project that would involve, um, you know, a lot of work and a lot of sort of look into colonial archives as well as to how these different movements and circulations are also seen as quite threatening to the British and the French. And then, you know, that's when citizenship and nationality being firmly set becomes you know, a big issue for, for the British and for the French. Fascinating. Well, we all look forward to uh, seeing the fruits <laughs> of this research project. Thank um, you. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. And thank you. um, you're going to provide us with a little uh, reading list in case people are interested in yes. looking into this uh, in more detail. Yes, most um, definitely. But for now, thank you so much. And, and thank um, you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>